<clears throat> well, forgive me, I have a bit of a cough this morning, so I hope it doesn't uh, distract you too much from where we're going. We will be back in the book of Genesis today and continue on in our exegesis of it. We've been in and out of Genesis for, I think, four years now, three years now, three years now. Look how far we've gotten. 23. Almost halfway, right? So Genesis chapter 23. While you're turning there, let me remind you of the backdrop since it's been a while since we last dug into this incredible book. The last time that we heard about Sarah, the wife of Abraham and the mother of the nation of Israel, was back in Genesis chapter 21. There we had read about Isaac being born, Ishmael ridiculing him relentlessly, and then, of course, Ishmael being cast out. Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was born. Remember that. We will now find out in chapter 23 that she died at the ripe old age of 127. That's 37 years for those of you inclined to do the math just between those chapters. 37 years have gone by, and we know very little about what happened in those years which illustrates an important point about the Scriptures. We need to bear in mind the Scriptures are the revealed and preserved Word of God. They're God's Word. And as such, they represent the information God has deemed necessary to reveal to us. They do not represent an exhaustive knowledge about God or about God's people. They tell us what we need to know, but they don't tell us everything there is to know. Still, even though the Bible isn't exhaustive in its historical record... It is perfectly accurate in the things that it does record. So you might say, though it isn't exhaustive, it's accurate and it's faithful. And we also have to remember this, and this really bears down on chapter 23 where we're at today. We have to remember God's word reveals what he reveals on purpose. That is to say, there's nothing in God's word that is superfluous or gratuitous. It's not there just to fill up space. Everything that God reveals to us in his word has a divine purpose for being revealed. In other words, he hasn't necessarily revealed everything to us, but everything he has revealed is necessary for us. You with me? Amen? That's exactly what we're going to see today in Genesis chapter 23. All right, so to review, chapter 22 was where we saw God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. Remember that? Many theologians and commentators title that chapter Abraham's trial or the trial of Abraham's faith. And and certainly that's true. Obviously, if God asks you to sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love, that's obviously a trial of your faith. I'm not going to dispute that, obviously. But I also want to remind you, it was a trial for Isaac as well. And we often miss that fact. We miss the fact that Isaac was, by that time, old enough to put up a fight. Remember, Abraham was a hundred when he had this boy. He wasn't a young spring chicken. And by the time we get to the sacrifice on the mountain, Abraham's close to 120 years or around that age. We don't know exactly what age Abraham and Isaac were. Commentators and Bible scholars dispute that amongst themselves. Some will say that Isaac was as young as 12 or 13. Some will say he's as old as mid-30s. MacArthur reckons Isaac to be over 20 years old and Abraham to be at least 120 at this point. 
But the point is this. I can't tell you for sure because the Bible didn't tell us for sure. But the point's this. He's not a little boy. And in our minds, a lot of times we think of Isaac going up the mountain as this little, you know, five-year-old. I said it this way. He's not Jericho's size. Okay, Jericho is my son who's five. He's not Jericho's size when he's going up the mountain. Okay? Imagine if I were 120 and I'm taking Buff up that mountain. If Buff decides he doesn't want to go and decides to put up a fight, there's not a lot I'm going to be able to do about it. If he decides to, if he takes off running, I promise you, I will not catch him unless he steps in a hole and breaks his leg. Okay? Or I'm in a car. If he decides he's going to get away, there's not much I can do about it. If he decides he's going to put up a fight and not be bound, there's not much I can do about it. Isaac is in on this too. And that's the point. Genesis 22 says this. It says he laid the wood upon the lad. The same word that's used as lad means young man. In other words... The wood was too heavy for Abraham to carry up the mountain. It wasn't too heavy for Isaac to carry up the mountain. Isaac carried the wood. He knew what was going on with the sacrifice. He's asking his dad questions about it. I'm telling you that to remind you what kind of incredible gospel foreshadowing we saw in Genesis chapter 2. A foreshadowing of what we would see with Christ some 1,600 years later as he took the wood for the sacrifice upon his back and headed toward God's altar of Golgotha. Somewhere along the way up the mountainside, Isaac realized, I'm the sacrifice. And at that point, he could have run away. He could have gotten free, could have wiggled out. He could have done a lot of things. But what does he do? He faithfully submits himself to the plan, knowing it would cost him his life. In Genesis 22:8, after Abraham told Isaac that God would provide the lamb for the sacrifice, the Bible says, and they went up together. That's a it's not a bad translation, but there's nuance that's missed in the English language. The Hebrew does not mean they just walked together. It means they were agreed on how to proceed. They were agreed on how to go. In other words, Isaac knew the plan and said, fine, I'll go. He didn't run away. He doesn't fight as Abraham's tying him up to lay him on the altar. No, he faithfully submits to God's plan, having full assurance in the things that God has spoken and having full assurance in the love that his father has for him. That is incredible gospel foreshadowing. And of course, remember, Isaac is a type of Christ here. Colossians 2, Hebrews 10, etc. tells us the Old Testament gives us types and shadows, but the substance is Christ. He is the scarlet thread that runs through the entire Bible and ties it together. He's the scheme and the theme of God's word. And Genesis 22 just has so much rich foreshadowing regarding him. Thankfully, of course, at the end of the chapter, we see God providing a ram for Abraham to sacrifice instead of his son. Remember, later, the New Testament tells us that he really believed he was going to sacrifice his son and God was going to raise him from the dead. And Isaac must have believed that, too. That's faith. We see God make a promise to Abraham that actually includes you in Genesis chapter 18. Or in Genesis chapter 21, in verse 18, God tells Abraham, quote, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Galatians chapter 3 goes on to tell us that seed was Christ, and that all those who have faith in Christ are blessed, along with believing Abraham. That includes you. You were in that promise. You were in God's mind when he spoke that. 
By the way, that's Galatians 3, 7 to 9, if you'd like to look that up later. Now, that brings us up to where we are today, to chapter 23. And from a disinterested glance, chapter 23 seems to be of little significance or importance. It spends only two brief verses discussing the death of Abraham's wife, and then it spends the remaining 18 verses discussing about how Abraham bought a burial plot for her. Nothing to see here, right? And let's just skip over that and get on to the good stuff, the weightier matters, right? Just run past that. Well, not so fast. In a way of speaking, there's more here than meets the eye. There are actually some very important points that need to be mined out of this short little chapter. And that's what we're going to attempt to do today with the Lord's help. Okay? So let's pray and we'll get into God's perfect and holy word. Let's pray. Lord, please build us up through your holy word today. Use your word to challenge and convict us, to conform us more to the image of Christ. Let your word do your work in the hearts of your people. May it edify and encourage us today. May it continue to mold us into a people who live to bring you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let it be. Genesis chapter 23, starting at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Let me stop real quick as just a side note. Um, some really poor translations will say back in Genesis chapter six, God's talking to Noah about the flood to come. And it says, he says that the days of the years of man's life will be 120 years. Some really poor translations. The NLT says, um, man's normal lifespan from now on will be 120 years. Some people that don't do a real good job of actually looking through the scriptures will actually cling on to chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, and they'll say, see, this is where the Bible says that man's life spans 120 years. Nobody can live longer than 120 years. Well, um, Sarah just did. Abraham will. That's not what that was talking about back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, when he says that the life of man is going to be 120 years, he's telling Noah, in 120 years, I'm going to flood this world and kill everything. Boy, get to work. You with me? Okay? So Sarah lives 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Verse 2, so Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Why are... um, Why are Jews also called Hebrews? You're seeing it. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. There are a couple of salient points that need to be made before we go any further. Just in these two verses. One, the Bible says Sarah lived 127 years. So what? Big deal. Why do we care? Because she's the only woman in the entire Bible whose age at death is recorded. It is a sign of significance and of respect. It gives us some measure of how she's respected in Scripture. I like the way pastor and Bible commentator David Guzik puts it. He says, Nowhere in the Bible are we told to look to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as an example of a godly woman, even though certainly she was. But not once are we told to look to her as an example of godliness. And yet, when in Scripture, twice we are told to look to Sarah as such an example. Isaiah 51, 1 through 2, and 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6. 
Both of them talk about the godly example of Sarah. In fact, this is what 1 Peter says. If you want to turn there, that's fine. It's 1 Peter 3, 3 through 6. It talks about Sarah. It says this, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be in the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Don't preach that verse in our culture. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, even calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Well, there's not a popular verse in our culture, is it? It's not popular in the hyper-feminist, feminazi culture we find ourselves immersed in today. But I've got news for you. God's word is God's word nonetheless. And it's true whether the entire culture hates it or not. Sarah is held up as an example of a woman whose faith and manner of life is to be emulated. Sarah? I mean, the same Sarah that thought she would help God out by giving her handmaid to Abraham? You know, the same Sarah that got all riled up after her foolhardy scheme actually worked? That Sarah? Yes, that Sarah. You see, the book of Genesis isn't just a chronicling of the faith journey of Abraham. It's also a chronicling of the faith journey of Sarah as well. What do we see in Sarah? Well, we see just as Abraham grew and matured in his faith with the Lord and in his faith walk, the longer he walked with the Lord, so did Sarah. Did did Abraham have some great failings in his walk with the Lord? Yes, obviously so. Did Sarah have some great failings in her walk with the Lord? Yes, obviously so. Question, have you had some? Have you ever come to a place in your faith that you look back and went, man, I biffed that one. Boy, I'd like a mulligan there. Yeah. And if we could put every single thing you have said done thought of your faith walk up on display like abraham and sarah i promise yours would not be a spotless record either now the truth of the matter is friends saints there's only one whose whose record would be not yours not abraham's not sarah's and that's actually the hope of these passages the hope of these passages is yes you will mess up you will do your very best To live a life that honors and glorifies God. If his spirit lives in you, that is your desire. That's your drive. But you will mess up. You know what the hope is? That Christ is there when you mess up. That the Lord says, it's okay. I'm going to teach you. Just like he did Abraham and just like he did Sarah. I'm going to teach you how to walk faithfully. I'm going to teach you how. I'm going to mature you. I'm going to grow you. The scripture says it is he that works in you both to will and do to his good pleasure. He's growing you now. He's growing you now. And yet in all of that, Sarah was unswervingly faithful and loyal to Abraham throughout it all. She saw his faults. She saw his flaws. She saw his failures. And yet she was still with him to the end. In my mind, that's her most perhaps outstanding trait. She saw Abraham in all his weakness, all his flaws, all his failures. And yet she still treated him with incredible dignity and respect. Let me ask you something, wives. 
Can you say that? Yeah, but you don't understand. Do you know how many problems he has? Do you know all of his flaws and faults and failures? No, I don't. You do because you live with him. But you know what? I saw Sarah. She knew all of Abraham's flaws and faults and failures. Dude. Twice he lied about her and got her put into a harem, basically. And she still had dignity and respect for him. If she can respect her husband, I'm pretty certain your husband hasn't sold you off as chattel slavery yet. You don't know. You don't understand how bad he is. (laughs) That's probably true. But I know that you are too. What an example. See, it's easy to cast a disparaging eye towards Sarah because we know all her faults. We know all her flaws. But the question is, can we really match her example of faithfulness? She has an incredible record of faithfulness. I wonder how much better off the church would be if we had more young wives and mothers who were a little more like Sarah. That stings to hear, doesn't it? What would it look like if we actually taught our young women to be more concerned with humble faithfulness than worldly significance? I'm so tired of hearing that word. I want to be significant. No, what you want is everybody to know who you are. You want everybody to listen and bow down to you. You're being led by, the scripture says there's three base base motives in the heart of man. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And all these are of the world. I wonder what it would look like if instead of being so enamored with our own significance, we were a little more enamored with being faithful. What would it look like if we celebrated those women who dared to be focused on the faithfulness of their homes, to love their husbands, to love and raise their own children, to be homemakers with unflinching dignity and respect for the man they married, something like Sarah? What would it look like? You think that might get the attention of the world? What would it look like if we actually taught them to adorn themselves with the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is absolutely anathema in the world system of thinking would the world take note you know what i think i think we're a little too scared to do that to be honest that kind of lifestyle just sits a little too far outside the american norm that kind of lifestyle which is explicitly taught in the scriptures by the way is just too radical for us we need something a little more toned down Hold on there, Wilson. You're going a little too crazy. Give me a little something a little more in step with the culture. Something a little more, uh, what's the word? Oh, yeah, compromised. That's what we want. Because the truth is we'd rather fit in than stand out. Because inside our hearts we are sheep. And we don't want to admit it. But it's true. But Sarah was a quiet and gentle homemaker. She is nothing that the world would say is significant, and yet the Scripture says she was. She's a loving wife. She's a loving mother. She saw all of her husband's faults and flaws, but she stood by him. She treated him with dignity and respect anyway, and the Bible says her example is worthy of emulation. Verse 2 says, Abraham came to mourn for Sarah. He felt the loss of his faithful companion. Wouldn't you? Look at all that they've been through. He felt it deeply, and he wasn't afraid to mourn openly. It's not wrong to weep and mourn for someone that we love. He knows he's going to see her again, and yet it hurts, and he mourns for her. 
Remember, Sarah died before ever getting to see Isaac get married or have children. She died before ever getting to see a grandbaby. I'm sure that weighed heavily upon both Abraham and Isaac. That was hard on me. You know, my, my dad passed away. He saw me get married. He passed away before any of our kids. And that hurt. It still hurts. I wish he were here to see our kids. I know he'd love them. And it hurt in Abraham's heart too. Verse 3, Then Abraham stood up from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a foreigner and I am a visitor among you. By the way, he's not talking about because he's from Chaldee. He's not saying, I'm from Ur. I'm a he's saying, I'm passing through. My home is not of this world. Your home is of this world. I'm a foreigner, just like you are. If you have the faith of Abraham, you are a foreigner in this land. You're a foreigner to whatever culture you're in. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. And that's what Abraham was saying. I'm a foreigner and I'm a visitor among you. How can you be a visitor? You've lived here all these years. No, my home is not here. My home is with the Lord of glory. I'm a foreigner and a visitor among you. Give me property for a burial place among you that I might bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold it from you. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you might bury your dead. <coughs> At this point, I need to explain a little bit about Middle Eastern customs of the day. It looks like they're offering him their field for no price. That's not true. Um, they were basically telling him that he could, in essence, borrow whatever land he needed to to bury somebody. Hey, look, man, you can. At the time, that's what you would do. Right. We still own this field, but if you want to bury somebody in this field or this cave or this place or whatever, do it. We're not going to hold it back from you. Right. But Abraham wasn't wanting that. He wasn't wanting a place he could bury his dead and forget them and go on. He was saying he wanted a plot that could be used for generations to come. No, I want to buy this land. By the way, if you think about it, that's pretty bold. You want to talk about showing faith in all that God has promised? He his son's not even married yet. He doesn't have any grandbabies. And yet he's saying, I want a place that generations to come, we can use this. You don't know you're going to have any generations. Yes, I do. The Lord has spoken it, and he'll bring it to pass. How do you know it? Because I have it on God's word. <clears throat> He wants a burial plot suitable for multiple generations. It's a response of his faith in God and in God's word and in God's character to fulfill all the promises God has made. Also, by the way, notice the respect that these people have for Abraham. These are the Hittites, not exactly known for their upstanding character. But notice the respect that they have for Abraham. That tells me something about the way he has lived among them for all these years. They treat him as a man of integrity. Let's continue on. Verse 7, Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, the sons of Heth, and he spoke with them, saying, If it's your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and meet with Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he has, which is at the end of his field. Let him give it to me at the full price as property for a burial place among you. 
So Abraham actually had a particular piece of property in mind, the cave at Machpelah. That property was in the land of Ephron, the son of Zohar. In his travels around Canaan, by the way, Abraham had earlier lived in that area. In fact, he was actually um, familiar with that cave. He built an altar there to God in Genesis uh, chapter 13, verse 18. He built an altar there. So he knew this cave. He knew what it was like. He knew this area. He had had an experience with the Lord there, and he wanted that place, and he was willing to pay full price for it. He tells him that. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, all who entered at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and the cave that's in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. So bury your dead. Doesn't that sound magnanimous? It, it, when our American ears hear that, we think, wow, what an incredible deal. Like if we were there, we'd be like, thanks, man, that's awesome, and we leave, right? That's not how it was done, okay? He's not getting the field and the cave for free. That's not the case, right? This is part of how deal-making was done then. Uh, by the way, it's still done a lot of times this way in the Middle East. This is how bargaining was done at the time, Okay? Here's how the bargaining always began. The seller would ceremonially offer it for free. That was supposed to be a show of goodwill and his generous disposition toward the buyer. In other words, his his offer to give it to him for free was the uh, public signal that he's willing to sell it. Do you have property you might not be willing to sell? Do you have stuff that you own that you wouldn't be willing to sell at any price? Right? This is basically letting Abraham know, I'm willing to sell it. You can have it. I'm willing to part with it. But he's not actually going to get it for free. That's not how it worked. Okay? Ceremonially, you would offer it for free. Then as a show of goodwill and good faith, a reciprocal show of good faith to the seller, you, the person buying it, would have to reject that offer. Then the seller would come back and give you this really high price. And then you'd begin haggling them down to, you know, a, a comfortable level to be able to purchase it. Okay, that's how it was done. All right. So this is the ceremonial offer from Ephron. Ephron says, no, I'll give it to you. Look at Abraham's reply. Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. Look, he's showing courtesy. These are the Hittites. And yet he's showing respect. It says something in how we should interact with others. What about our unbelieving neighbors? What about the unsaved that we interact with at work? You should still show respect. They're still image bearers of God. He bows down before the people of the land. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people saying, If you'll give it, please hear me. I'll give you money for the field, so take it from me and I'll bury my dead there. So Abraham's now rejected the ceremonial offer as a, as a show of good faith. But this next bit is where it gets interesting. It's why this is here. There's a reason God put... This whole exchange is not superfluous. It's not there for just no reason. We're going to see something very serious, very important, very salient about his character. Ephron answered Abraham saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? Go bury your dead. That is an exorbitant price. 400 shekels, roughly 100 pounds of silver for a small field that has a cave at the end of it. 
Somebody had done the uh, math on it a few years ago and said this was roughly $140,000 for a small field with a little cave. No home, no structure, nothing in, in current money. That's it. That's a lot of money. Typically, what would happen was this 400 shekels was just where we're starting. Okay, Ephron doesn't ex- expect him to take that. Ephron expects he'll come back and say, ah, 400, what about 250? No, how about 350? No, what about three? We're going to haggle down to a price point, right? That's what he expects to happen. So Ephron throws out 400 shekels, which is a lot of, about 100 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. And look what Abraham does instead. So Abraham listened to Ephron and weighed out the silver for Ephron, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth. 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Now we see that Abraham's being the generous one to the unbelievers, to the Hittites, to his neighbor. He's not trying to haggle him down and rip him off. He could have haggled for a better price, but he didn't. And I'm not saying it's wrong to if you do. I'm saying here is Abraham being very magnanimous. In essence, he's giving Ephron what today we might call a tip. But it's a big one, a big tip. He's paying full price of the field and then giving extra on top of that. That kind of thing, by the way, was unheard of in that day. That was not what you did with common landowners. The only time you did something like that was when you were buying something from a king or a warlord. You didn't do that just for common people. Abraham did. The father of your faith did. That kind of generosity That kind of respect was not just extended to a common landowner. It was here. It was big money for the day. A shekel was worth roughly a day's wage. That's 400 days wages. It's more than a year's wage for a small field and a cave. That's serious money. Notice what he does next. He weighs it out in front of everybody. He wants them to know. You can see for certain I'm not using unjust scales. I'm not trying to rip you off. I'm doing everything on the up and up. I'm not being sly, I'm not being coy, I'm not being shady. I'm not trying to cheat you or swindle you. Now, I want you to think about this. Seriously, I want you to really think about this. Abraham is buying land that God has promised just to give to him. Why you got to buy it? God said he'll give it to you. Not only that... He's paying top dollar to people that God told him a few chapters ago he's going to run out of the land. He told him in chapter 15, 18 through 21, if you want to look that up later. He told Abraham in chapter 15, I'm going to run the Hittites out of this land. I'm going to give them in your hand. I'm going to run them out. This is going to be your land. And now we see Abraham buying a sliver of this thing, buying a piece of this, a plot of this ground at top dollar. What's going on? Why is he being so magnanimous? What is going on? In a word, Abraham is demonstrating maturity in his faith. He isn't trying to swindle his neighbors. Could he have tried to justify that? Have you ever seen somebody justify that? It's okay if I take advantage of them. They're not believers anyway. It's okay if I take advantage of them. They don't go to my church. I'm not kidding. I've heard those words. I've literally had full conversations about that. Well, those are unbelievers. Yeah, and they're image bearers of God. And tomorrow that unbeliever might be a believer. 
And part of the way that you bought yourself an audience, if you will, with that unbeliever is they see that your lifestyle matches your confession of faith. That guy tells me that he's a Christian, and not only that, he's generous. He treats me with dignity and respect, even though everybody else doesn't. Everybody else treats me like an outcast. I'm not a cool guy. I don't have the right last name. I don't have a lot of money, but this guy still respects me. This guy still treats me with dignity. I'm not a king. I'm not a warlord. I'm just a common landowner. But this guy treats me with dignity. Abraham is demonstrating maturity in his faith. He does not have the same faith that he had five chapters ago. He is being led by the Spirit of God. He is growing by the Spirit of God. He's being sanctified by the Spirit of God. He isn't being unscrupulous or selfish in his business dealings. He isn't trying to swindle people. He isn't trying to rip them off. He's doing everything on the up and up. He's generous. He's kind and he's classy, even to those who might not deserve it. And that should be a point we should take home. He's leaving an example behind us on how business is to be done by those of us who are of faith. We're to do business uprightly, fairly, generously, honestly, the kind of business dealing that brings honor to the name of the Lord. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were all within the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all those who went in at the gate of his city. Abraham has done business with integrity. He's done it for all to see. There's nothing shady about what's going on. He weighs out the money in front of them. He agrees to a price that's more than fair to the guy that he's buying it from. And he weighs out the money in front of everybody. Nobody can say later, hey, you ripped them off. Hey, this guy tried to cheat his way into this. No, I did it in front of everybody in the daylight. Nothing shady, coy, or sly going on. I wasn't swindling anyone. Remember, by the way, at this time, legal transactions were conducted at the city gate. Why? That's where the city leaders met and where witnesses were on hand. So everybody could see this is what went down. By the way, we see the same thing in Ruth uh, chapter 4, right at the beginning of chapter 4 there. So Abraham has been upright in his dealings. He's left us a legacy. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre. That is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that were in it are deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. Why is that important? Who cares? That's actually a massive archaeological point. The text emphasizes this property was now Abraham's by deed, not only by the promise of God, but also by deed. There would be no disputing by anyone who actually owned this property. Abraham buried his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah. She's not the only one buried there. In fact, that very cave still today is known as the cave of the patriarchs or the tomb of the patriarchs. You can see it if you go to the Middle East. Well, that's not true. That's in a Muslim controlled area right now. It's. You might have to sneak in at night if you really wanted to see it. But it's there still. A little tense there right now, you may notice. It is still a significant landmark 
throughout history. It is a big-time archaeological landmark because the Bible tells us specifically where this is at. And if the Bible weren't true, it wouldn't be there. And the things that it says about it wouldn't be found. But surprise, surprise, it is. It has remained a significant landmark and one of the great archaeological proofs of the historical accuracy of the Scripture. Sarah is not the only one that's buried there. That's also where Isaac and Ishmael would bury Abraham. Which we'll find out in a few more chapters in Genesis 25. Isaac and Rebekah are both buried there, which we find out in Genesis 49. Jacob and Leah are buried there, which we also find in uh, Genesis 49. And Joseph buried Jacob there in Genesis chapter 50. Abraham secured a place where his family for generations could be buried, and he hadn't seen one of them yet. What gave him the boldness to secure this place? The Word of God. He believed what God has said. May we as his people do the same. Let's pray. Lord, I pray what you've shown us today in your word will be an encouragement to your people. Let it build us up that we might better reflect the image of Christ to a lost and dying world. Lord, I pray you'd open doors of conversation this week that we might share what we've learned with others, that we might be able to point others back to you and to your word. Keep us all, Lord, until we meet again. In Jesus' name I ask, and all God's people said, Amen. You'd stand with us. We'll sing one more time.